Broadcasting from the Cross Politics Studios in Moscow, Idaho. This is Campus Reach Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode seven, Render Unto Caesar, What is Caesar's, and the Coming of the Son of Man. Welcome, everybody, to the Campus Reach Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. I am your host, Keith Darrell. And today we are going to be discussing uh, Matthew chapter 22 and Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, as well as uh, kind of a little bit of response to a comment on uh, my YouTube page regarding Matthew chapter 24, 29 through 31, and how that was fulfilled in the first century. So some of that was already discussed previously as far as uh, the Old Testament context for the sun, moon, and stars going dark, and how that is the destruction of a nation and not necessarily the literal collapse of the cosmos. So I'm not going to rehash all that, but I do want to flush out a little bit, some of his uh, sort of questions. But the reason I want to address the render to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, at least in part, is because obviously I think it's an important thing in the context of me doing evangelism. I'm often bumping into police and rules and laws that are inappropriate. And obviously there's that certain element of I'm doing evangelism and I can just say I'd rather obey the Lord than Caesar. But then we also have a very practical debate discussion going on in certain people advocating for Christian nationalism, people who are against Christian nationalism. And I came across this um, uh, clip of, uh, I always want to say Strachan, it's not Strachan, Owen Strand, I believe is how you properly pronounce it. And I I came across this clip, I just think it's important to kind of hear what he's saying, because I think this is kind of the normative approach that a lot of people have, and I don't think it's actually accurate to what's going on in the first century. So I'm going to play this clip. Then I'm also going to play a clip from William Wolfe. I don't really know him. Met him ever so briefly at the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference. What was that, like a month ago, a month and a half ago? And uh, there's a clip going around. I didn't get a list of his whole thing, so I don't want to necessarily take him out of context. But it did deal with the aspect of Christians taking up arms. And I think both of these issues are intertwined into Matthew chapter 22, rendering under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And there's a lot of issues that need to be teased out here. I'm not going to be able to get to all of them, but uh, we're going to see how all of this ultimately is even intertwined with the destruction of Jerusalem uh, and Matthew chapter 24. That's what we hope to do. So here's a first clip from Owen Strand. Nonetheless, we do need to stand, I would argue, for certain ideals today. I believe in religious liberty. I do not believe in the forceful suppression of blasphemers in the New Covenant era. I recognize that Caesar is supposed to have rendered to Caesar what is Caesar's. There is, in some form, a neutral space created by the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, who knows about his own divine authority, I assure you. All right, so he wants to say that there is, in some sense, and... I don't want to do him injustice just because he is saying, in some sense, a neutral realm. I want to reject that. Jesus is not constructing a neutral realm in that. But I also want to take a list of this from William Wolfe regarding Christians kind of taking up arms. And if we have ever lived in a point in time in American history since then that we could argue that now is a time to arms again, I think we are getting close. Now, Davies sets that out and says that it is right, even though as Christians we seek peace, that when the enemy is pressed upon us, if we fail to heed the call to arms, then we are acting as cowards. All right. So how does all this relate to Matthew chapter 22 and rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's? First of all, I want to go back to the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 2. I'm also going to look at Psalm 110. Um, Because when we think of the Messiah, kind of way downstream 2,000 years later, 
I do feel like we often are confused of even what we exactly mean by saying Jesus is the Christ. And uh, a couple episodes ago, I did discuss uh, Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, and how the Great Commission is actually building out of First Chronicles chapter 36, and how Jesus is essentially the greater Cyrus. And so Isaiah 45, 1, I believe it is, identifies Cyrus as an anointed one, or a, would be Christ or Messiah type figure. And Jesus is actually the greater Cyrus that is uh, restoring the temple and bringing people back from exile, even though Cyrus's decree did that. So when when we think of Messiah, we should think in terms of politics, and we don't always think in terms of politics. Uh, and we even will will say something along the lines that at least this was popular when I was younger is um, you know the Jews were expecting a political Messiah and they got Jesus instead, and almost as if he's creating this realm now that is about the human heart and not necessarily the physical world. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And one day in the millennium, we'll get physical again. But for the time being, it's just about kind of the heart. And it's not really about politics in the physical world. And that's really not what the Messiah was doing. But what I want to maintain is pretty simple, that Jesus is, in fact, the Jewish Messiah, as predicted, as set forth in the Old Testament. And he's fulfilling it. Now, what might be different is how it is being fulfilled, but not so much the fulfillment. So let me see, read Psalm 2. Then I'm going to jump to Psalm 110. Um, and as you get into the Psalms, realize this. When you read Psalm uh, 1 and 2 particularly, you're basically entering into the whole hymn book. And, and I think it's laid out very specifically, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, for a very specific reason. And they're introducing you to the Psalter. And Jesus is actually the man of Psalm 1. So Psalm 1 says, uh, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way to sinners, sit in the seat of mockers, but whose delight is upon the law of the Lord. And upon his law, he meditates both day and night. Um, he's like a tree planted by streams of living water. Uh, he'll bear its fruits in a season, etc. And, and Jesus is the one who never once walked in the counsel of the ungodly. He never once uh, you know, stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of scoffers. Uh, but he, day and night, not my will, but your will be done. He delighted in the law of the Lord and doing the law of the Lord. So Jesus is actually that. And once we're planted in him— that those things are now becoming fulfilled in us. We are now people who are planted by streams of living water that should be bearing fruit in its season. But as you enter into the psalm, that's the ideal man. That's who the Israelites were to be. They were not that. Jesus is the true Israelite. He fulfills those things. And that leads us to Psalm 2, which says this, uh, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash in the pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way. For his wrath has quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so um, if, if we were to sit down, we spent more time in Isaiah 44, 45, and I brushed on this a little bit uh, a few weeks ago when I was talking about Cyrus. We would see that these things were actually, Cyrus was doing these things. He was breaking nations to pieces like a potter's vessel. And so being the Lord's anointed, he was doing that. So as you think through the Jewish Messiah, there should be some component of um, kind of kind of like a Caesar, an emperor-type king who's saving Israel and putting down their political enemies. So you should be seeing, hearing, and thinking along those lines. So I don't think that's inappropriate. The question becomes, how do we go about doing that? And Psalm 110 
uh, says this, uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And so the, that's kind of some of the stuff that the Jews are going to be having in the background as we're thinking about their Messiah. And I believe, uh, I should fact check this, but I believe Psalm 10, 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. So when you think of Psalm 110, are you thinking of Jesus' current work and what he's currently doing at the right hand of the Father? Uh, the answer should be yes. It's not thinking, oh, it's going to be someplace into the future. And the same thing with Psalm chapter 2. Uh, so even at Jesus' baptism, Psalm chapter 2, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. That's kind of echoed back there. And that's kind of building out of 1 Samuel 7 and, and, and the Davidic covenant that your son's going to be able to do these things or will do these things. And so Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are prevalent throughout the New Testament. And even if you were to read 1 Corinthians 15, um, it, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit my hand until the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Jesus is in the process of putting down all of his enemies. So that would include Islam, communism, secularism, socialism, all these isms that are contrary to his kingdom. He's in the process of putting them down. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that's kind of where some of the aspect of the post-mill hope lies is, no, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is in the process of putting down all of his enemies. It may take a long time. Kingdom of God starts off as a mustard seed, becomes the greatest seed, and, 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 but it, it will be terminated with the resurrection of our bodies and the last enemy being destroyed, which is death. Um, and so how does all this relate to Matthew chapter 22, uh, 15, which is uh, rendering under Caesar the things that are Caesar? So Owen wants to suggest that um, Jesus himself created a neutral realm. Is that what is taking place here in Matthew chapter 22? My answer is going to be no, but here's why. So let me read the text. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him. Even right there, uh, you should stop and you should hear Psalm chapter 2 again um, when he asked the question, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And so what's going on here in Matthew chapter 22, 15? Then the Pharisees went and they plotted. And so, the, the, and this is leading to the destruction of Jerusalem because the Jews of the day uh, John chapter 8 says they're, they're children of the devil, but the Jews would have been thinking all these nations are conspiring against the Lord against his anointed, uh, but Jesus and the way Matthew's laying out his gospel is saying the Jews are just like the nations. The Jews have become Babylon. The Jews have become Egypt. The Jews are now kind of the wicked people, and you even pick this up in Acts chapter 4 um, when the disciples, uh, you know, they're, they're being uh, oppressed, but they get together and they pray, and they do this. Um, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? So they're interpreting this in Acts chapter uh, 4, verse 25, as why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And he goes on to say this, for truly in this city... In, um, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you had uh, anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants 
uh, to continue to speak your word with boldness. And so what you have is Psalm chapter 2 is fulfilled in Jesus. Why do the nations raise? And it's not just the Gentiles are doing it. The Jews are doing it as well. And that's what you're seeing with the apostles praying here. Then also kind of downstream from that, the apostles are now experiencing what Jesus is experiencing. And so kind of, I think it's from James Jordan or it might be Peter Lightheart, but kind of a, what happens to the head ends up happening to the body. So they, they you know, conspired against the body, they're going to, or they conspired against the head, they're going to conspire against the body. That's what's going on here. And so in Matthew chapter 22, when they're, uh, what, what's going on here is that these Jews, the Pharisees, the Herodians, they're coming against Jesus. And they're plotting in the way that Gentiles are. So all of this in Matthew's gospel is basically saying how corrupt and wicked God's people are. And so um, even if you jump down to verse 41 as well, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, and so what what are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and all these people doing? They're plotting, they're gathering together because they want to strike the Lord and against his anointed. So Matthew's gospel is laying out Psalm chapter 2, uh, being fulfilled in Jesus. And that's what we're seeing here. So uh, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. Um, <laughs> and so it's uh, uh, even this, like, like the, the way that Matthew's gospels laid out is, is just so great because Matthew chapter 21, he have the triumphal entry. So everybody's kind of excited. All right, the Lord's anointed. Here he's come, triumphal entry. What does he do? He cleanses the temple and then uh, his, his authorities challenge. And he entered the temple. This is uh, 21 verse 23. The chief priests and the elders, people came up to him and, uh, as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we were afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered to Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. So, so Jesus is the opposite of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees come to him with flattery and they say, teacher, we know that you are true, that you, uh, that what you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and do not care about anyone's opinion. Well, the Pharisees, they care about people's opinion because they're afraid of the people and, um, they also didn't believe John, uh, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So a little bit of the backdrop of this, I think it was like in 86, maybe in 85, there was a, uh, is when Rome put a tax upon them. And there was a man named Jesus, uh, Judas of Galilee. So similar to Jesus of Galilee, but Judas of Galilee. So Jesus was a little boy, maybe eight, nine years old when this would have been happening. And he thought this taxation upon them was a sign of slavery and oppression because you had Gentiles taxing. If you remember earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus asked the question, who do the kings of the earth tax? And so uh, for the, the, their sons, or, or basically like the foreigners, I can't remember the exact wording, and he, he ends up, um, the, the, the kings of the earth tax those who are not, not their sons. And so Judas, the Galilean, was pushing it back 
against this tax, and it led to a revolt. And I think it's Acts five thirty seven speaks about uh, the Gal- Judas the Galilean. He led a revolt, and he perished. And so they end up putting down this tax revolt. So what you end up happening is two groups of Jews. You have those who are docile to Rome, who are just saying, "Look, we'll pay our taxes," and then you kind of have the zealots. And the zealots are essentially saying. Um, no, we don't pay taxes because it's it's a sign of oppression or slavery. We're being oppressed by this foreign oppressor, and it's and and you know that's not who we are. That's not what the people of God do. And so what they're trying to do is catch Jesus in the dilemma. Because if he says don't pay the tax, like Judas before him, he will be put down and maybe perish. Um, but on the flip side, if he says, oh no, we just pay taxes, then he's kind of losing kind of like the populist vote, uh, the populist idea of what the Jews should be doing. And so he comes up with a clever response to them. He's not swayed by appearances, so should we? Uh, is it lawful? And so that that and that's kind of like the key key question is who has power and authority here? So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, "Why you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax." And they brought him a denarius. So, so even that itself. So you have a group of people trying to catch him into a trap. They're in the temple, and they're probably in the outer courts. And we know they're in the temple because uh, twenty-one, twenty-three. There's, there's been no break or any change of um, venue here. And it says, and when he entered the temple, uh, twenty-one, twenty-three. And, and so here you have these people trying to catch Jesus in a trap. And he says, "Bring me a denarius." And they bring him one. And so it's kind of like a question: of, <laughs> Why do you guys have denarius in the temple? So it's almost. Uh, they're almost like the abomination that causes desolation is already there because they've brought this idol. These Jews would have thought it was idolatrous to have this image of it, and Caesar would have been even identified as being divine and the son of God. Um, and so this idea that they have one is why he can already just call him, why you put me to the test, you hypocrites. Show me the coin from the tax. They brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. And he kind of gives uh, kind of an equivocation of an answer. So someone hands him something with an image on it and he goes, uh, whose image is that? Oh, it's Caesar's. Then give it back to him. So I don't think he's creating a neutral realm here. I think what he's basically saying is, yeah, uh, like render it back. Give this back. Like, what, what does this matter? Now give to God the things that are God. Now what is God's? The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Caesar does owe his allegiance to God. So it's not just that the Jews have an allegiance to God and Caesar can do his own thing. Um, but I think what he's laying out here is Jesus is not a revolutionary. And this ties into the William Wolf. Uh, the time for the Christians might come to take up arms. Like, who are we going to take up arms with in America? Like, who, who's backing us? Like, it's one thing if you have a state of, say, in the state of Idaho, they want to push back the National Guard and all that sort of stuff, and we yoke with that. That's one thing. But this idea that we as Christians are going to take up arms and somehow push back anybody, I think is an absurd, absurd idea. And that's what you have going on in the first century. The first century, you have the revolutionaries, and then you kind of have the, the non-revolutionaries. And where's Jesus at in this? I think Jesus is still a kind of a, a type of revolutionary, but how do we go about revolutionizing social order. And whether or not you love the civil rights movement or not, we're much closer to like what Martin Luther King did in the nonviolence of that. We're, we're submissive to things that are proper and just, but on the flip side, we're willing to push back in a godly manner. And that's one of the challenges that we, we have with this. So uh, we're, when we render into Caesar the things that are Caesar, it's not because we think he's always legitimate, proper, and right, but how do we go, go about overthrowing the social order? I would just want to argue we're not revolutionaries. We don't take up guns. Um, when I'm on campus, it often comes up, you know, different political issues. And when they want to push comes a shove, I say, well, I'm just not a revolutionary. But this, this 
me standing out here preaching, this is my jihad, this is my holy war. I'm standing out here preaching, and what I seek to do is love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. So this idea that we're going to take up arms and overthrow it, or even the idea that there's this neutral realm, if you read Psalm 2, Psalm 110, you kings be warned, be wise, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish your way. So Caesar doesn't have a right. Jesus isn't creating some realm where Caesar has a right to do whatever he wants. Uh, Jesus is still Lord, but Caesar in this context— we're submitting to him, which will ultimately lead to his destruction and his end, I believe. So giving him back his silly coins is one thing. Us rendering to God is the is appropriate response. So what you end up having here with the Jews is they're not rendering anything to God. Even their temple at this point has become a den of thieves, and they have Caesar's coin in it. They're already under his rule and his reign. And so we need to think through, and I don't have the right uh, uh, all the right answers on this, but we need to think through how do we properly rebel against the governing authorities in a in a way that's righteous, in a way that's holy. And this builds into Matthew chapter 24, um, and I was asked a question. Let me pull this up. Um, I, was, I was asked a question on uh, YouTube regarding um, Matthew chapter 24 verses, um, verses, was it, 30... Um, 24, 29 through 30. And I discussed this a little bit uh, a few weeks ago, but he says this, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Um, and so the question becomes, what's the tribulation? And again, I, I just think the, the whole context of what's going on in Matthew is it's building towards the temple and its destruction. And so the question's uh, going all the way back to Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so... Uh, and Jesus answered them, see, uh, no one leads you astray. So he begins to answer their question, but the, the question is predicated upon Jerusalem coming down. And so uh, the, the main thing I want to get at is uh, in verse 30, it says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so there are a couple things here. Um, I accidentally closed the file. Um, and so I, uh, the, the question that I received was this, do you believe this happened in the first century? Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man uh, in heaven, and all the peoples of the earth, and he says, not just Jerusalem, will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Now, I do think, uh, and I'm going to read something from uh, um, R.T. France, and R.T. France, is a, he, he's deceased now, but he wrote a commentary on uh, Matthew but, but he would want to argue that this is a reference back to Zechariah 10, I believe. And what's going on there is the ones that pierce him are the tribes of Israel, the tribes of the land. So when it says all the peoples of the earth, a better interpretation would be the tribes of the land. And so it is about the destruction of Jerusalem. So I don't take it as a metaphor um, for all the earth just being there. I, I think it's the tribes of the land, uh, I think is a better understanding power and glory, and he will send forth his angels with a trumpet. If this happened in the first century, all the peoples of the earth saw the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. I think it would be the most spectacular event in all of history, and historical records around the world would be rife with reports of dumbfounded people in total shock at the amazing sight ever. Notice it says all the peoples of the earth, um, and not just those around Jerusalem, or are you saying the peoples of the earth is a metaphor for people around Jerusalem. No, I just think it's the, the tribes of the earth, and it's uh, and the context is Zechariah. Again, also Peter says, uh, the day of the Lord comes as a thief. The heavens will disappear and roar. The elements will melt in fervent heat, and the earth will, uh, its works will be bare. And he says, "Sorry, this has not happened in the first century." Now, I'm open to the idea. I'm undecided whether or not I think Second Peter three refers to uh, the, the final coming. I, I do believe that Jesus will descend bodily first. Um, 
Thessalonians 4, I think the Lord himself, I believe Jesus is a man. He's bodily. He, he's physical. He, the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and I believe then the resurrection will happen. So 1 Corinthians 15, I look forward to the final consummating resurrection. But I think what's going on in the Gospels um, particularly, and Matthew, is when it's talk about the coming of the Son of Man, that's built out of Daniel chapter 7, which is not a descent to the earth, but it's ascending to heaven. So he ascends to the Ancient of Days. He saw him coming to the Ancient of Days. So this language here of coming, I don't believe is a descent to the earth, but it, it deals with his establishment of authority at the right hand of the Father. And we see this in Matthew chapter 26, um, when Jesus says, from now on, when he's before Caiaphas, he says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man, um, in verse 64, uh, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. But I tell you, from now on, you will. And so this isn't, again, an event 2,000 years in the future. It's something that they're going to be seeing. And I believe that begins with the resurrection, the ascension. But the destruction of Jerusalem is a public vindication of who Jesus is. And what's interesting, there's a, a commentary. I can't remember the guy's name. Um, I, I just took a screenshot of it. You, you find it. On, it's the old Tyndale. France has a newer Tyndale commentary. This is the old Tyndale commentary. I can't remember the gentleman's name that did it. Um, but what's interesting, he, he does talk about this. And so... From an empirical standpoint, are, are we to believe anything along these lines of the coming of the Son of Man? You're seeing this stuff take place in heaven. It's possible. I'm not saying this is absolutely it, but it's possible uh, that we did. And what he argues is this. He says, it may well be then that R.A. Knox is right when he says, you must understand the portents of verse 29 as an allegorical way of referring to dynastic changes. AD 69 to 70 was the year of the four emperors. And you must identify the coming of the Son of Man in verse 30 with some verified experience, e.g. the voice which was heard according to Tacitus crying out, the gods are departing. The type of language used by the Roman historian in the passage from which this quotation is taken is certainly instructive. It says this, Contending hosts were seen meeting in the skies, arms flashed, and suddenly the temple was illumined with fire from the clouds. Of a sudden, the doors of the shrine opened and a superhuman voice cried, the gods are departing. At the same moment, the mighty stir of the of their going was heard. And so that's, uh, that is an account of the destruction of Jerusalem and what was happening. So this idea that, you know, this event couldn't possibly have taken place historically because it had to be this, well, is that something that the tribes of the land could have seen? Uh, Tacitus testifies to it and then goes on, uh, this is no longer Tacitus, it's just the commentary, it says, the destruction of Jerusalem temple was indeed a divine visitation, which one familiar with the language of the Jewish prophecy could describe as a coming of the Son of Man in clouds of heaven with power and glory. And so I, I, do, I do want to maintain that verse 30, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man and all, all the tribes of the earth or all the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds and heaven with power and great glory. And he goes on to say, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from one winds from he end of heaven to the other. Now, right now, um, I believe that's kind of building out of like Deuteronomy 30 verse 4. Uh, Zechariah 12.10 um, is also kind of tied in, as well as Isaiah 27. So, so I do think this is Old Testament language, and my current position on verse 30 one is this, that we are the messengers. And there is, I believe the angels are, so angel could be two ways. You can either have what we think of as an angel, a non-corporeal being that is doing things, or messengers can be human beings. And even in Matthew's gospel, the majority of uses in Matthew's gospel, I believe are angelic beings, not just people who are messengers or people who are sent. So I lean in the direction 
that what is going on in verse 31 is part of what we're doing now in our evangelistic efforts. Now, I, I do believe the messengers, we have angels and everything else working with us. So I think that is what's going out, and the trumpet blast does deal with the gospel. I don't think it's the final trumpet blast that ends all things. Um, and, and so that would be where I'd want to maybe distinguish. So, so I do think it's, it's something that's currently happening. We're gathering elect from all over the earth uh, is what I believe is happening. So uh, how does all this relate? It's this. Uh, we have all these discussions over Christian nationalism, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, render to God the things that are God's, um, and you have all sorts of you know political animosity where people want to take up arms and stuff like that. Who are we as Christians? I, I like. I do think there's an aspect of Jesus' ministry that is time bound in particular that's dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem and how the Jews are supposed to act. So I think that's a lot of what's going on in the Gospels. Um, now we're in, we are in kind of apocalyptic type times. Not, I don't think, I, I'm not a prophet. I'm not saying uh, anything beyond that. It's, it's obvious. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, as Bob Dylan says, that the world is being shaken and a lot of powers are shifting and everything else. So what sort of people are we to be in that context? I don't think we should buy into revolutionary spirits. I don't think we should be like the zealots. And so Paul was a zealot. What does that mean he did? He was persecuting the church. I don't think we should be persecuting other people. Now, I realize we're not going to use that term, persecuting other people. But what we want to be is people who are obedient to Jesus, and we will submit to governing authorities, ultimately with undermining because we're going to be rendering all things unto God. And so as we look at the earth, the earth is Lord's fullness of, we want to push the crown rights of Jesus into everything, but we do that by submission. We do that by loving our enemies. We do that by preaching the gospel. We don't do that by adopting political agendas. I don't, I don't think that. But all that is a political agenda because Jesus is Lord. And so we are reading Psalm 2. We are reading Psalm 110. We're seeing how all these things are fulfilled in Jesus. We are seeing how Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. He is in the process of putting down all of his enemies. So we want to maintain the worldly political aspect of uh, the political component, maybe not worldly is not the right word, but we have the political aspect where we do want to put down all governments and authorities and powers and rulers and have them submit to Christ. But the way we get there is the way of the cross, not the way of guns and everything else. And so I think that's, that's where the, the kind of the rub comes in. So as you contemplate uh, rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, don't think Caesar has some realm where he can function autonomously from Jesus Christ the Lord. If we have a chance to stand before Caesar, we say, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way, and that he owes his allegiance to him. Uh, but then on the flip side, um, we, we, we don't want to create this realm that, um, you know, Caesar can do his own thing, that or we're going to go... Uh, you know, break their chops now. That's just not who we are in this age. So that's this episode of the Campus Preacher Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, you can reach out to me, Keith, at campuspreacher.com, Campus Preacher on Instagram, Campus Evangel on the Twitter, and I think that's kind of most of my social media, or you can just look me up on Facebook. Uh, Lord bless you. Keep you. Talk to you next time.